Anyway, it's a really hot late summer day here in um, Buckinghamshire. We've had a pretty rubbish summer here, Brian, and uh, suddenly it's hot. And my little studio, I never got around to putting a fan or anything. I didn't think I'd need it, but it's like a little sauna box here. But um, Brian, listen, thank you so much. Yeah, it's hot. I'm so used to... um, Now, do you have air conditioning? Uh, No. (laughs) No. Well, you know, here where I live, everybody has air conditioning or they melt like Crisco. So, you know, you, you have to... You, you just have to have air conditioning. And, and so, you know, in the summers where, where I live in August, it's gotten up to like 115, 116. Um, but it's dry. You know, I go back yeah. east where it's muggy and I, and I melt, but, um, but anyhow, I feel your pain, sir. Where are you right now? Roughly. I'm in Red- Redding, California, which is far northern portion of California. It's kind of way, way north of anything that's populated. So we live out in the sticks. Oh, sounds like my cup of tea. So you're even above Napa Valley, way up north. Yes. Yeah, we're I north love- of Napa. We're north of kind of inland. Yeah. I um, I, I, I've really got fond memories of California. I had my honeymoon out there, went to San Francisco in 2010. And then we went oh, out nice. to, yeah. And nice. then we went, great. yeah. And then we went out must to, have gone to the wine country. we went to, we went to Napa Valley and then we also went to Yosemite. We love Yosemite. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. It was amazing. That's a great we, we area. There's hiking. so many pretty places to go. Yeah. But I think California is not the place it used to be. No, not even, not even. It's very different. Um, it's very, yeah. Uh, um, now I live a different experience because, um, we are in a very libertarian portion of California. And okay. so a lot of the regulations are ignored and a lot of the, you know, <laughs> big, you, you know, the sort of draconian measures then you know um they looked the other way i mean we there was a there was a move to get all the medical workers vaccinated in shasta county where i live but there was such a revolt that ultimately they they fired the public health director i love and it so you know be over yeah the board of supervisors fired the medical director so it is it's it's a great place if you're gonna have to live in california you might as well live here so great well, I just want to tell our listeners that your son, you're at home right now because it's really early in the morning where you are, California. That's so you're so you're like way, way, it must be what, seven o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning? It's, it's seven o'clock in the morning here. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty early. So you, you're, you're doing this podcast from your house, not the office. So thank you for that. And your son's at home and he has autism. So if, there's, no, so if there's noises in the background, folks, that's why. And we appreciate you um, listening and just being aware. Um, and that's the reason why there might be some background noise. There's nothing really we can do anything about that. And I still thank Brian so much for doing that, especially knowing that you're taking care of your elderly son. And that in itself is a, is a, is a major task. And, and I've got three young kids myself, Brian. And trust me, going to work is easier <laughs> than staying at home and looking after children. Yes. So you have my my gratitude and thanks but i reached out to you not knowing that you're libertarian but now i know why because i'm libertarian too um but listen basically i i don't know i saw i saw this green and yellow book 
vaxxed, unvaxxed. And I looked into it and I was absolutely fascinated. And, um, you know, please do your own introduction. But to, from my understanding, you're a senior researcher. You've got a PhD. So you're a proper doctor, um, unlike me, an MD doctor. You're a proper <laughs> doctor. And um, you're a senior research um, fellow at the Children's Health Defense organization that you know, everybody knows of RFK Jr. and his crusade. He, you know, I think used to be the chairman or he's currently, because of his presidential campaign, taken a kind of like suspended that role. But along with him, you have written this new book and you're happy to talk about anything you like, but I'd love you to delve into this book and explain to me the rationale behind it and what made you want to write it. And what did you guys find out? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Ahmed, for the uh, introduction. I um, uh, I really am thrilled to, you know, do an international podcast with you. Um, you know, it's part of the, the, you know, part of the issue that comes with the territory is that, you know, for one of us, it's early morning and one of us, it's, it's, you know, later, but, but I'm, you know, I'm really glad to be able to, to help out is, you know, and appreciate the graciousness of your viewers and listeners, you know, regarding the background noise and everything. But, um, but anyhow, the book is really, there are so many of us that have been doing this for many years. I've been advocating and researching regarding vaccine safety since 2001. And um, one of the things that has never been done by the federal government in the United States is a vaccinated versus unvaccinated child study. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there've been calls for it, even the Institute of Medicine, which is a prestigious institute, sort of kind of like the Cochrane collaboration, maybe not mm -hmm. as independent, but they called for this in 2013. And, you know, after doing a review of the information, review of all the data that they could find on the vaccine schedule in the United States. And so um, consequently, it's something that Bobby Kennedy was really, really concerned about. And in 2017, he actually had a meeting. Uh, it was him, uh, a, another advocate named Del Bigtree, an mm. attorney named Aaron Siri, and a, and a really strong advocate who's, who probably he started this movement, Lynn Redwood. Um, they all met with Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins um, in the executive office of the National Institute of Health. And one of the things that they wanted to do was um, ask, where are the vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies that the government's done in order to verify the, the safety of the vaccination schedule? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, Fauci with much bravado, he has all these files and papers and everything. And he's rifling through all these papers and he's exasperated and he can't find it. He cannot find a vax unvax study. And so finally, he says, I'll just email it to you. I know that there are vax unvax studies, but in reality, there aren't. And of course, Fauci never followed up. Francis Collins, you know, um, uh, Mr. Kennedy uh, reached out and contacted uh, Dr. Collins several times. And Francis Collins finally said, you know, vaccine safety isn't the problem. You're the problem. And and that ended the conversation. Wow. And so, you know, Bobby. Yes, go ahead. No, no, carry on. I'm just saying, wow. 
Okay. Well, no worries. No worries. Um, but Bobby's undeterred. And in 2019, he reached out to me and said, let's find all of the vax, unvax studies that we can find on the, in the open scientific literature, primarily in the National Library of Medicine. So you go to the PubMed website. Let's find as many as we can possibly find. And he wanted me to um, distill down the information into graphics and um, verbiage that he could put on his Instagram account. And so we started to feature these studies, you know, when I first started, uh, Ahmed, um, I, I thought, oh, we'll find a few, you know, maybe a dozen or so. But we kept on finding these studies where either intentionally or accidentally, they would um, compare vaccinated versus unvaccinated children, vaccinated versus unvaccinated adults. Sometimes it was the whole schedule. Sometimes it was a single vaccine. And so we kept going. So 60 um, studies later and 60 Instagram posts later in 2021, Bobby got deplatformed from Facebook and Instagram. Of course, I think you're no stranger to that. Yeah. But um, we looked at each other and said, let's make this a book. And so I continued to do my research. Um, Bobby continued, you know, he would initiate, he'd find studies and he'd send these studies and I would compile them and I would find my own studies. And so the book has compiled about 100 um, studies where we found that they did a vaccinated versus unvaccinated comparison. And really it reads like a handbook. We wanted to feature every study. We wanted to make sure that there were graphics for every study that distilled them down. So it was simply, you know, so it was understandable science. So a layperson could pick it up and read this book and say, okay, this is what happens. Is when we featured, you know, chronic diseases, infectious diseases, any sort of adverse outcome from a vaccine. This is what happens in the vaccinated group, and this is the comparison of the unvaccinated group. And so we were very, very excited to find that many studies. And there are eleven chapters in the book. The, the, the second one deals with the entire childhood vaccination schedule. And we also deal with vaccines in pregnancy, the HPV vaccine, the flu shot, the COVID-19 vaccine, which, you know, there was an exhaustive amount of literature. I think I found over 30 studies just on the COVID-19 shot alone. And wow. so um, we we then were able, it was a long endeavor, but we finally were able to uh, release the book uh, just last month. Well, congratulations. I know that's not an easy thing to get done. Well, thank you. Wow. So, you know, when you said you went to see Fauci and he's rifling through, when, when was that again, that you went as a, as a group of Aaron Siri, RFK Jr.? The group Jr.? went in, in, yeah, in 2017. In 2000, I think it was May of 2017. Wow. And and it's so sad that he was struggling to find one paper because you would think that actually any kind of intervention that you're going to roll out to millions of people, right. particularly children, you would want to have multiple studies ongoing to make sure that you're not picking up anything untoward because complications can happen in the short term, midterm and long term. So surely you want to be having a control group anyway to make sure you're picking up at different time references because different complications happen at different times. You know, 
when you inject something in the short term, it might be a, a you know one problem, but further down the line, 10, 15, 20 years, you might have another complication completely or reproductive health or whatever. You know, it's the same with surgery. As exactly. a surgeon, you know, we have complications that we bracket up into short, medium, and long term. What's surprising is why no one is actually looking officially at doing these research studies. So if it wasn't NIH funded or central, you know, research being carried out, who were the people who were doing these studies looking at vax and unvaxed groups? Mostly independent scientists. Um, and there were some government funded studies that we found. Uh, some of them were, you know, we, we even found several studies by the CDC, but when, when they're properly analyzed, then you actually see a very, very strong negative effect associated with the vaccine group and the control group. And some of these, some of these, uh, you know, data points were just hiding in plain sight. And so we wanted to be able to feature those. Um, and, and really give an opportunity to, to educate the public. And, um, you know, the, the first real vax unvax study, um, was done by an independent scientist named Anthony Mawson. It, he was completed in 2017, about the same time that the group met with, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins. And he was able to look at a cohort of homeschool students. And he really started the ball rolling. He really got things rolling. And I was so inspired. You know, Anthony Mawson, he's at, um, at uh, Jackson State University in Mississippi. He's one of my heroes because um, his paper was uh, immediately drew attention to it. It was originally published in the, in the journal Frontiers in Public Health. And it got 80,000 hits the first weekend that it was posted. And mm. so Frontiers got a complaint from somebody and they pulled it down right away. They took it off. They never officially retracted it, but they said, oh, well, we re-reviewed it. And we found that, you know, there were methodological issues or, or you know, they didn't like the data set. And so um, uh, undeterred, um, Dr. Mawson then turned around and published the work in the Journal of Translational Science. So that's one of the, you know, it's just one of the studies. And, and he's an independent scientist. He did it with independent funding. And, um, and he was, he was able to do it. A lot of the studies are bootstrapped. You know, they're, they're by individuals who are concerned about vaccine safety. Um, and work at institutions that have enough academic freedom that they're allowed to do this work. Um, some of those people are few and far between. And then some of these studies, we, we have found studies, um, especially regarding the DPT vaccine that is not still given in the United States. We did find some studies dating back to the 1980s. Wow. It's really sad that people are struggling to do these studies. It's, you know, people talk about the science, but the science, science is so biased. You know, if you put a research sure. grant in to say, I want to look at um, goat fertility and how it's being affected by climate change, you get your funding. <laughs> you know, it just because you mentioned climate change. I mean, what the right, hell? Right. You know, it's just like just and, and it's like as, as long as you can draw some conclusion that it's got to do with climate change, you'll get funding for it. And, you know, if you if you right. if you do a study that says I want to look into the safety 
of vaccines, you won't get funding. You'll get asked, no, no, you why are you funding. even questioning vaccine safety? <laughs> it's like science is so bizarre. You, how selective and how political and, oh, it's just ridiculous. So I think people need to understand how corrupt science these days is and how, yeah, it's all an opinion, to be honest. So what? It is so corrupted, yes. No, carry on. Uh, it's interesting. I just want to. Yeah, I want to interject really quickly. Mm. Um, I was able to complete two vax unvax studies looking at the vaccination schedule. Um, and my first study was published in 2020. I work with a, a distinguished medical analyst. His name is Neil Miller. And um, it was interesting because when we started to submit these to medical journals and scientific journals, one journal actually invited, you know, we went through five journals without peer review and they would just reject it. No peer review, just just uh, they'd see the they'd see the title and they'd say, no, we're not going to publish that. One journal actually invited me never to submit a publication to them again in my entire life. <laughs> so, you know, and we finally did get it published Whoa. in a journal called Sage Open Medicine. Whoa. Yeah, never again. They were like, you're blacklisted. Just because you, you know, you, broke the subject of vaccine safety. Right. How scientific is that? I don't know about you, but the <laughs> moment the moment people tell me not to question things, I know there's something worrying going on. You know? Exactly. It's, like, it's very it's you know, it's very obvious where where they're they're hiding the bodies, right? Yeah. Don't look there. <laughs> it's like I'm the kind of kid that looks don't look. Okay, what am I? What am I not meant to look at? That's the way how I, how I work. Exactly. So all these studies that you found, what what were the actual conclusions then? What, what were your findings? I mean, you mentioned like before you actually answer that. You mentioned the CDC, for example, have done a couple of studies. Let me let me guess. Did they say we compared vaccines against unvaccinated, and the vaccinated group were much better off? And then you looked at the studies and the data, and were like. No, that's not true. What the frack are you talking about? This is bollocks. This is, exactly. Is that, what, is that really what exactly. you found? Exactly. No, no, it's not what we found. There was one study on the MMR vaccine. Yeah. And, and it was one of the studies that was not truly a vax on vax study, but I wanted to feature it in the book anyway. Okay. Uh, and it was done in 2004. Um, but it basically showed that if you got the MMR vaccine on time, that you were uh, 1.49 times more likely to get an autism diagnosis than if you if they just delayed it to after three years of age. And it was statistically significant and it was right there in plain sight. And um, it was even the, the signal got even greater for boys, even greater when they just looked at boys only. And so. Um, you know, I, I read further and the CDC said, oh, well, that's just because they got diagnosed with autism early and they had to um, get vaccines for special ed. So they're <laughs> and, making and it was odd when you look behind the yeah. mirror. That's not a requirement for special ed in the, in the city of Atlanta where they did the study. And it was not a requirement at that time. Mm. And so, you know, there was, and if it was a requirement, you would have seen the same effect in girls and boys should be consistent across the board. And that's not the case. So, you know, basically they lied. 
Yeah, there you go. So that basically, whatever it is, they'll make the results fit their narrative. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Whatever, you know, um, the CDC is not a scientific organization. They're a policy um, creation and a policy compliance organization. And so therefore, um, even if a scientist publishes something correctly, by the time it goes through peer review and it's released from the CDC, all these policy wants have edited it. And so, you know, if it doesn't follow standard CDC policy, then they'll never publish good science. So the problem is I'm a victim of Hollywood trash movies. You know, growing up in the 80s, you know, I loved, I loved all the, the movies, Robocop. You know, I'd buy that for a dollar and Terminator and Predator and Star Wars. And amongst, amongst all these great movies um, are, you know, lots of other kind of not so good movies where the CDC is involved and the CDC, you know, you, you see them in their labs. And they're and they're saving the day and they're hunting for viruses and and they're coming up with cures. Is that not what the CDC is all about? What is the CDC about if that's not what it is? You know, there's going to be a pandemic and the zombies are coming and they need to get that blood vial test tube to Atlanta and some smart cookie there is going to save the day. Is, is that not what the CDC does? Exactly. Well, um you know, I did see the movie Outbreak, and I also saw the movie Contagion, where the CDC just rushes in and saves the day. Um, Five billion dollars of CDC's budget actually goes to Big Pharma because they buy vaccines from Big Pharma. So that's five billion. That's that's nearly half their budget. Um, out of that five billion dollars, they spend uh, five hundred million dollars on advocating and advertising vaccines, so people get vaccinated. Out of that five billion dollars, um, about thirty million is allocated for vaccine safety. So, if you look at the budget, the budget for vaccine advocacy is twelve times higher, twelve times higher than the budget for vaccine safety. Okay, and so they're a captured agency. They they're beholden to the pharmaceutical industry and their pharmaceutical industry's biggest customer. Um, wow. So, you know, five billion dollars worth of, for the vaccines for children program every year. And so, you know, that is what they're about. They're not they're 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 beholden to their pharma masters. If you look at the advisory committee for immunization practices, which is the one that puts back, you know, they're the committee that puts vaccines on the CDC mm -hmm. schedule and they 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 can vote, you know, uh, a pharmaceutical company in one pen stroke. They can vote it rich to the tune of at least a billion dollars a year in sales for that vaccine once it's added to the schedule. And so there are myriad conflicts of interest. Uh, there are people in an advisory committee for immunization practices that vote themselves rich, you know, like Dr. Paul Offit and the rotavirus vaccine. Um, and it is just really a cesspool. I hate to say it. I really, really hate to say it. You know, we give these agencies the benefit of the doubt. And I want to make sure that I'm publishing good science, despite the fact that you know, I carry my own baggage. You know, I have a vaccine injured child. So, you know, we pummel ourselves at Children's Health Defense. I work with other scientists and we, we peer review our work and send it out to other people that can really just rip it to shreds before it gets published. Um, but it's very, very difficult 
to look at what's going on at the CDC and say, yeah, this is a, you know, a scientific agency with integrity. It's just not. Brian, are you not just a victim of, like you said, your own bias? Your son's got autism. You just want to blame it on the vaccines. You know, isn't, I mean, I hear this all the time. Autism hasn't gone up. We're just better at diagnosing it. There's just more people with ADHD because we're better at diagnosing. There's more people with allergies because we're better at diagnosing. it. There's more people with dyslexia because we're better at diagnosing. We're just better at diagnosing. We didn't know these things in the past. And you're just guilty of being having a chip on your shoulder and you want to blame someone because human beings love blaming. So you've got a sum of autism. You're looking for someone to blame. You're blaming the vaccines. Absolutely not. No, no. What? Um, first of all, the autism rate is increasing. It's been it's been verified through several studies. The most important study was a study that came out in 2009, looking at my own state, California, and the autism rates and and you know the percent of autism that would increase if it was for community services getting better or better diagnosing. And that reflected less than 25% of the entire increase in autism. So there's something that's actually going on. You do not see, you know, we don't miss low functioning autism. You know, they act like in the two, in the 1960s and 1970s, everybody was just stupid, you know, but we weren't. I mean, you know, it's not better diagnosing. It went from one in 10,000 to now one in 36. And so, you know, it's, it's something happened. Something happened along the same times that they gave vaccine manufacturers a liability shield through the 1986 National Vaccine uh, or National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And the vaccination schedule expanded precipitously in the 1990s. Okay. Now, I have to make sure that I pummel myself scientifically because mm. I do carry my biases. Mm. And so we make sure that we give vaccines every benefit of the doubt that we can possibly give them. Mm. Um, we we will actually bias towards the null hypothesis almost intentionally. The null hypothesis would be not finding an effect, not finding an effect, not finding a difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated. But it's just not what we're finding and, you know, I want I, I peer review myself with independent scientists that, you know, obviously don't have the same baggage that I do um, to make sure that what we're doing, you know, and this is this the studies stand for themselves. The studies are in PubMed. You know, they should stand for themselves. You know, they have gone through the rigors of peer review and and the National Library of Medicine has set a standard that they have passed. And so, you know, we, when you look at the studies, you need to look at the studies for the study's sake. And you also need to look at a critical eye. Um, if it was just me talking, it would be a little different than the voices of 100 or so studies that we have, you know, incorporated into this book. Yeah, no, I get it, Brian. I absolutely get it. So can you give me a rough Rough gist, a rough idea of what it is you guys found? Sure. 
Sure, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we looked at specifically, and this is featured in chapter two of the book, is the vaccination schedule, the entire schedule. And we found about 10 studies that looked at completely vaccinated versus completely unvaccinated children. Mm-hmm. And the unvaccinated children were having less ear infections by a very, very strong margin, by about four to one. Uh, less respiratory infections and pneumonia, again, by about four to one. Uh, less developmental delays. Some of the more conservative estimates were that vaccinated children were having uh, twice as many developmental delay diagnoses than unvaccinated children. Others ranged much, much higher. Uh, the rate of autism was five times higher in vaccinated children versus unvaccinated children. And I've seen that number, that five times higher affirmed by multiple studies now. So it seems to be, you know, sort of a a, a very, very uh, scientifically affirmed figure. Other things like ADHD just jumped through the roof 20 times higher, mm. so much higher in children who have followed the CDC's vaccination schedule. Ear, infection, ear infections that I mentioned before, in some studies, 27 times higher. And that would be chronic ear infections where you would see a child that would get like two ear infections in a running six-month period. Um, and just, you know, have them on a yearly basis or on a, on a regular basis. Asthma uh, was also much, much higher among the vaccinated. And that is an autoimmune disorder. It is tied to the immune system. It's tied to immune dysregulation. And it's on the rise. You know, asthma is about one in 10 in the United States. Mm. And so, you know, and we would see this over and over and over again. And we did, we did, you know, several, we highlighted several different vaccines. Uh, we highlighted vaccines in pregnancy. We saw m- many more adverse outcomes re- regarding the influenza vaccine in pregnancy, the Tdap vaccine in pregnancy, and now the COVID-19 shot in pregnancy. That very much concerned me because it seems like the new marketing ploy for pharma is prenatal vaccines. And, uh, you know, they've recently in the United States added the RSV vaccine to the schedule. And the COVID shot is two shots at a minimum during pregnancy and can include a booster. So, you know, what in the heck are we doing when we see a statistically significant increase in ASD associated with a flu shot in the first trimester of pregnancy? Uh, ASD being autism spectrum disorder. Um, Also, uh, significant increases in um, poor pregnancy outcomes, such as um, uh, chorioamnio um, amnionitis, um, and um, uh, eclampsia and preeclampsia, and um, uh, spontaneous abortion, uh, which is a miscarriage, you know, prior to 20 weeks gestation. Uh, that was seen, especially when they gave two flu shots, uh, when back when the pandemic flu shot first came out in, uh, 2009, 2010, when they gave two flu shots to pregnant women, the number of miscarriages increased by 11.4 times, about 11.4%, but 11.4 times. And then fertility parameters, we were seeing fertility parameters go down especially with a COVID-19 shot, when you look at adverse event reports like the CDC's vaccine adverse events reporting system, the number of fertility issues that have been reported due to the COVID-19 shot 
eclipsed the rest of the history of that reporting system for reporting vaccine safety for 32 years. Since the COVID-19 shot, they've had overall 10 times as many reports of fertility issues as they have in the entire rest of the 32-year history of theirs. Okay. So there's obviously something going on. And, you know, I do want to talk about vaccines and pregnancy because it's an issue of concern. And like I said, you know, it appears to be that, you know, prenatal shots are all the rage. And we have to ask ourselves, what in the heck are we doing? We used to never vaccinate a pregnant woman before the introduction of the flu shot in the early 2000s. You know, never give them antibiotics. Don't eat tuna fish. But, you know, if they give a mercury-containing t- flu shot, sometime, somehow it's magically okay. Oh, my brain is hurting right now. So, Brian, <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people aren't religious, but they are. They just don't know it because they worship at the mm-hmm. altar of the holy jab. Okay? The sacred cow that's the vaccine. All hail the sacred cow. Okay? Um. And basically, a lot of people listening to you and me might be thinking, ah, here's a bunch of anti-vaxxer quacks. You know, vaccines are safe and effective. Vaccines are amazing. Vaccines are the best thing for medicine and health. You know, how dare you question it? I mean, are these shots, aren't these shots just like, you know, just harmless lunar injections? I mean, what's in these shots that could cause any harm? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, because many of the shots contain aluminum that is an adjuvant. Uh, an adjuvant causes the immune response overall, sort of non-specific immune response to be magnified. Uh, so if you, if you place it into a vaccine with a measles antigen, then it causes the response to be somehow magnified. Unfortunately, these antigens quite often don't work on their own. And I shouldn't have used measles because it's not in the measles, the MMR vaccine. It is, it's more in the uh, diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis vaccine, haemophilus influenza B vaccine, the hepatitis B vaccine, um, among others. There's some I know I'm, I'm skipping. So there's aluminum. There's still mercury through the uh, mercury containing preservative thimerosal in the flu shot that they give to pregnant women. Okay, you can get a single dose vial formulation without mercury, but it still has trace amounts of mercury. So you're not, you know, you're not really dodging a bullet that way. Uh, Formaldehyde is in these vaccines. It's used in uh, the processing of these vaccines. Uh, Cyanide is used in the processing of vaccines. Um, Polysorbate 80, which is a detergent that eclipses the blood brain barrier, is also in vaccines. And so when you look at all of these components collectively, they've never been tested together. They've, and, and I dare say that they've been tested separately. Many of these components, there is just not sufficient testing to know what in the heck are we doing when we add all these components, plus in some instances, live viruses, killed viruses, or antigens, protein antigens which are recombinant products. So that means you have carryover of DNA and RNA in these products. My brain, my brain is hurting. Listen, I think I've asked this of previous guests. Help me out here, right? So the idea of a vaccine yes. in my head is 
say you get a virus or a dead virus and you introduce it in the body, you get a live virus and somehow make it less harmful, whatever that virus is. Some people say there's no such thing as viruses. I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I've had a lot of people troll me. Oh, you don't, you're pushing viruses. Sure. You're, you're controlled opposition. You crazy quack. You're a member of the Freemasons. There's no <laughs> such thing as viruses. I, I think if anyone... You, come, you get it from both sides. You get it from both sides. And, you know, I, I, I get worried. I feel like, I, like I'm a dumb orthopod. I just have questions to ask. I've just found that yeah. everything I, I took for granted, I'm now questioning. And I find that if anyone Good tells me... You. Yeah, and if anyone tells me, don't question, this is the reality, and the fact that you don't even know this means that you're, you're, you're a bad guy and you're, we shouldn't listen to you, that to me is a red flag. That's a red flag. You know, everything should be open to questioning. So let's just assume there's these, let's just assume viruses exist, right? The idea of a vaccine actually sounds quite attractive. You get a little damaged piece piece of virus or whatever, you put it in your body and go, hey, hey, buddy, this thing is dangerous. It's not this one we've, we've incapacitated. But if you see a nasty version of this, make sure you remember and deal with it, right? Don't this one, you know, you need to you remember this guy. And if you see anyone who looks like this, lock them up. All right. I get that idea. All right. But then what's really weird is I thought, well, what are adjuvants? And I started reading that actually when you inject these viral particles or bits of them or dead bits of them or antigens, foreign material that the body is not meant to have inside it. Quite often the body goes, yeah, whatever not bothered and um i can understand why the no virus people then would get excited see viruses are, don't exist and they're not even a problem but anyway park that park that then the viral the vaccine industry say um well we don't want to give too much of the antigen and the virus because then that'll cause too many side effects but we don't want to give it on its own because it doesn't really do anything so we're going to add an adjuvant. Adjuvant sounds very nice. Add you something extra. We're going to add an adjuvant to boost the immune system. My first kind of like logical question is, why don't you titrate the antigen or viral load accordingly so that it creates some form of immune response, but not a toxic effect? That would be what I would think rather than add an adjuvant. But anyway, they don't do that. They want to add an adjuvant. So why do they add an adjuvant? They add an adjuvant to boost the immune system because the adjuvant turns out, like you've just said, is aluminium, a cytotoxic element to, you know, to, live, to life. It kills cells, causes death immediately. It's not good. Or mercury. I remember as a kid, yeah, I remember mercury. You know, we were taught, in, in, in school not to touch mercury because it's toxic and it's a poison and it's not meant to be in our body or food supply and it's not in any physiological process. Then you've talked about cyanide. I'm sure that's not a good thing either. Then you've mentioned formaldehyde, which is what you embalm dead bodies in. That's toxic to life. And then you talked about a detergent. Jeez, Louise, these adjuvants don't sound like good things. And if yeah, of course your body's going to have an immune response to that because when you inject these things into your body, you're killing bits of your body and your body has to mount an immune right. response and clear up the debris. But the body's immune response 
is like you've got the army, you've got the Marines, you've got the Air Force, you've got the Navy, you've got the special forces. You know, they will be targeting things, special ops, according to the enemy they, they encounter. You know, just because your body Correct. Lo- um, launches an immune response doesn't mean, oh, yes, they're going to respond to the antigen or the viral particle. They, they're like adjuvants, toxic material, deal with it. How does they boost the live vaccine or the, the antigen? I mean, does that actually even happen? I mean, please, can you make sense this to me? Because I don't understand this. Well, you know, if you, if you look at the, if you back up and you look at the immune system, it's so wonderful. It is so, you know, it's, 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 it's so intricate and it, and it's so, um, elegant. Uh, you have a response called B cells. You have a B cell response. That's a part of your acquired immune system. You also have T cells that are a part of your acquired immune system. Um, B cells themselves, you know, when you have that response in, and, um, vaccines most exclusively will stimulate a B cell response and the B cells make a cell type called plasma cells and then plasma cells will um, secrete antibodies into the body and the antibodies can um, tag the bad guys. They can, in some cases, neutralize the bad guys. They're called neutralizing antibodies, you know, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can also um, mark them for destruction. Okay. That's only 5% of the entire immune system. You know, it does not stimulate T cell immunity. Okay. They'll look at, if you get lucky, you might get some stimulation of T cell immunity, but it also disregards. And what they found with the COVID-19 shot is a phenomenon called innate immune suppression. You have, you know, a very, very large percent of your immune system is innate. It's not acquired. It doesn't, it doesn't require a vaccine. It doesn't require um, exposure to a pathogen. It is just, you're born with it. And, and the COVID-19 shot would suppress innate immunity in these boosters, repeated boosters. In fact, the Cleveland Clinic came out with a study that showed that the more boosters you got, the more susceptible you were to getting COVID-19 infection. Okay, because with each booster, you were suppressing your innate immune system. And so I think we need to back up and we need to look at the entire immune milieu, all of the cells, all of the chemicals, all of the cytokines, all the chemokines, everything in the immune system. And let's support that. Let's go ahead and support that rather than looking at biohacking, you know, which is essentially what you do when you, um, and, and I'm not saying that you couldn't just introduce an, a, an antigen and have an immune response. I'm not saying that you couldn't do that. But I think that with all the additives, with all the components, all the things that have been under tested, you know, now we're really, really knocking the immune system for a loop. Yeah, I, I think you've nailed it. I think I don't know about you, but the older I get, I realize the less I know. And the more intricate <laughs> the world around me is. To the point where I can't even fathom Absolutely. it. When I was young, I was like a cowboy. I was like, oh, I know everything. I'm so smart. Look at me. I got a degree. I know freaking everything. Everything's sorted. Yep, yep, yep. I was so confident, so sh- cocky and sure about everything. Now I'm like, oh, I fucking don't know. <laughs> oh, dope. Happy to say, don't know. And um, 
Yeah, like you're describing about the immune system. It's an amazing machine. It's a miracle. The human body has to be a creator behind it. Dude, I just can't believe this just was a random coincidence. It's phenomenal. It's mind-blowing. It's so elegant in its design. It's just... It's just beautiful. The symphony, this perfectly, you know, this orchestra just playing in perfect tune and pitch. It's just, it's not random. And I think one of the problems is that we, we've, we, we're like kids who discovered a few things and now think they know right. everything. You know, like my four-year-old boy thinks he knows everything. I'll give you an example. <laughs> <laughs> he goes... Daddy, your chicken, Bo, flied across the garden. And I was like, no, my son, it's flew. No, Daddy, he flies. I went, one, the chicken is a girl, so she flew. And he looked, he, he, he did a concentration. I went, when things happened in the past, the past tense, it flew. He went, no, Daddy, it actually happened. It wasn't in the past. And then I was like, no. Just because it happened in the past, I'm not saying it didn't actually happen. Oh, daddy, I thought you meant in the future. And I was like, he, what is this kid? He just, he's just arguing with me on every point. He just, he's at that age where he thinks he knows everything and daddy knows nothing. And I'm hoping as he gets older, he'll realize how little he knows. We're like those four-year-old kids playing with bits of things that we think we now understand the bigger picture Correct. but we actually know Correct. nothing there are so many unintended consequences for what we're doing and you know i've hacked god's toolbox before i used to do genetic modification of plants for the production of pharmaceutical proteins and i know you know the sliver of knowledge that i had and the tricks that we used in the laboratory in order to do that um, were just so, they were so minuscule compared to, you know, the, the immenseness, the immenseness of the biology around. And this was plant biology because we were doing genetically modified potato and tobacco. Um, but it was just, you're a bad one. And there were always, there were always unintended consequences. We would screen hundreds of plants before we'd find the one perfect plan, okay? But now, you know, with mRNA technology, we're actually doing that to everybody. We're transfecting their cells. We're transfecting everybody. And, you know, I think back to my experience in the laboratory where I had 99% of what I did was defected, was defective. And now, wow. but now we're doing that on a population-wide basis to humans. What do you mean by transfected? Transfected. That's when you introduce genetic material into a cell, and then it can uh, function as you know. It can hijack the genetic machinery, which is the principle behind the mRNA vaccine. Is that we provide a genetic code for the spike protein, then the cell produces a spike protein, then the immune response comes up. But also, what happens is that that gets reverse transcribed. And you also have bits of DNA contaminant because this is derived from a genetic, you know, it's derived from genetically modified E. coli. Um, and so all of this can go directly into the genome. 
And it's, you know, you know, it's been shown to, it's been shown to, and, and honestly, the way that that is delivered is the same way that cell transfection is done in the laboratory in order to get a genetically, a genetically modified cell line. So why, if we do this and we call it a vaccine and not a gene therapy technique, why aren't we getting genetically modified humans? I fear we are. Oh, wow. So you've got genetically modified humans. It's not a, it's, so the whole vaccine industry was a joke. Now we're making genetically modified humans. So all those people who are liberal lefty, want to go to Whole Foods, eat nice organic food, don't like evil core, but they want to get boosted because look how good they are. They should know that they're now GMO. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. It's a genetically modified product. It is a genetically modified product, and you've got all the key components to do genetic modification in human cells. And, you know, if you, Break if it you down. look at the original premise. Yeah. Okay. Break if it you down look for at me. the original premise for Moderna, you know, who is modified. Moderna means modified RNA, mod RNA, Moderna. Okay. And, um, what what they do then is they take this bit of genetic information called messenger RNA, they make it more robust so it's not broken down in the cells. Okay, yeah. they use instead of using a, a a a nucleotide that is naturally, they use what's called pseudouridine, and pseudouridine is not recognized by the mechanisms that break down RNA in cells. So this persists for a longer time. It's not natural. Then at the same time, there are DNA contaminants that are carried over. They're not cleaned out of the vaccine prior to release of the vaccine because these RNA fragments are produced by E. coli. Okay, so you've got genetically modified E. coli bits of DNA in that. And so when you, when you put this genetic material into a genome, the genome likes to slice, dice, and julienne it. It likes to bring it into it, identify it, see if it's friend or foe. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times it gets excised, you know, because it's God made us wonderfully. So our DNA gets proofread and edited. But if it's some, if somehow it's not excised, then all of a sudden you have the genetic code for the spike protein permanently, um, ingrained in your genetic material and you become chimeric. Part of your cells produce spike protein. Part of your cells do not produce spike protein. And when you look at the persistence of spike protein, you know, we were told originally that, mm. oh, this is going to stay in the upper arm and it's going to produce spike protein for about two weeks. Mm. Yeah. But it's persisting for months and months and months, upwards to six months now, that they've been able to see that vaccinated people are still producing the spike protein. That's got to be integration of the genetic material. Shit. And they keep telling us to get more and more boosters. And now they're, they're telling us this new variant. And, oh, everybody needs to rush right. and get some more. You can't, I mean, what the hell is that? And about? we'll get a vaccine that actually works this time. That's what, that's what the president told us. This vaccine will work for everybody. Who said that? Biden. Uh, correct. Demented Biden. Correct. Okay, we're jumping into COVID a bit. Let's go back to the childhood schedule. I see all these images of like little child with like 97 needles sticking into them. 
I mean, it's something ridiculous now, isn't it? What's the childhood schedule? How many, how many yep. jabs? Uh, there are 72 vaccines, 73 vaccines between zero and 18. That's insane. I mean, is it, is this all just money? There are a lot of reasons for it. Money is a strong, is a very powerful reason for that. I mean, you know, you're chasing um, billions of dollars and this has become such a huge enterprise. Um, and the, the thing that concerns me is that you give so many, so many of these vaccines all in a single visit. Okay, so at the six, uh, the two month well baby checkup, six vaccines at the four month well baby checkup, checkup, six vaccines, and they've never been tested together. These have not been tested in tandem. Okay, we're running out of limbs to put vaccines into. Okay, and so it's a grand medical experiment that we're participating in. And what about what about these adjuvants? Can you get rid of them? Do they stay in the body forever? You can detoxify them. You can, but you have to do it, you know, you, you have to do it intentionally. You have to do an intentional detoxification in order to get rid of these contaminants. They persist in the body. And it was shown in, in actual monkey studies that the thimerosal from mercury does hyperaccumulate in the brain. And when it accumulates in the brain, it, it accumulates for um, a half-life that was longer than the actual um, experiment uh, lasted. So the, the half-life of the mercury was indeterminate. So, hold on it was a second. was a study so, done in 2005 by so, Thomas Burbacher. So how do you de detoxify? So if I want this aluminum at my body and the mercury and whatever else, whatever crap is in there, how, how do I get it at my body? Mm -hmm. You can do it strong with strong chemicals. You can chelate it out. You can also do it um, with with you know uh, different supplements that will enhance the body's ability to detoxify heavy metals. Um, you know, you can drink silica water for aluminum, um, and that's that's one thing you probably want to would be if you're really aluminum toxic, you want to be more aggressive about that. But yeah, there are detoxification protocols to get rid of these metals. Can you can you like point my listeners to any particular place where they can find this stuff at? Um, gosh, I know you've said collating agents and chemicals and supplements. I, I mean, give me specifics, like like what? Um, you know, I, you know, Ahmed. It's been such a long time since we've done this sort of this sort of thing for my son mm. that I'm really out of practice in terms of chelation. No, so no, I don't fine. want to make any recommendation because I'm afraid that I might lead somebody on a wild goose well, chase. Well, I appreciate you being honest, but I mean, if if you could get eventually some of this stuff on the Children's Health Defense website, that'd be amazing. You know, just some kind of resource. Uh, totally. That people can go to. Right. And right. I know you've got a ton of stuff to, on your. We want people to be Yeah. I know you've got a ton of stuff on your, on your plate, but just eventually, if you can do something like this, I think a lot of listeners would be like, whoa, yeah, I want this stuff out of my body. Um, so anyway, okay. We've done childhood vaccination, normal schedules. What about the flu shots? So, I mean, I don't know about you, but over here, there's a big push. They're like, oh, we're doing this mass vaccination, flu, nasal spray. Every kid needs to get it. 
Do they need to get it? I'm sorry. Do kids need to Say get the flu shot? Time. Do kids need to get the flu shot? Well, I, I, I want them to make the decisions for themselves. I don't give medical advice. I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD. So I shouldn't say whether the kids get yeah, the flu yeah. shot or not. But yeah. I can say that um, there's, a, there's a significant increase in neurological disorders, including Guillain-Barre disorder. Um, the H1N1 flu shot was associated with uh, narcolepsy. Um, and that was a very, very strong historic association, especially in the European Union, uh, with a, with a, uh, H1N1 shot called Pandemrex. Mm. Um, in addition, um, one of the things that I found was the flu shot really, you know, if you get repeated flu jabs, your chances of getting respiratory infections become much higher. Okay. And so, um, the, this, this whole, idea of innate immune suppression, you know, with, with additional vaccines, you're suppressing the innate immune response every time. And so even though the flu shot may protect against flu, there were other respiratory infections where hospitalizations were much higher in the vaccinated children than compared to the unvaccinated children. So it's, it's all about basically these shots are fundamentally damaging your innate immune suppression. You can you can essentially damage your innate immune response. In some ways, it ramifies as innate immune suppression. In other ways, it ramifies as immune dysregulation. And so with immune dysregulation, when you focus and fixate the immune system on one particular antigen or one particular pathogen, then other things tend to slip by. Okay, mm. surveillance is like, oh, we got a flu shot. Let's focus on the flu, but how about these other other issues? Mm. And what? How about these other pathogens that come in? And so they slip through surveillance. Got it. Let's let's talk about COVID now. They're they're talking okay. about making all vaccines now mRNA based technology. If is this that is a case? Is this a case of? Well, you know, with COVID, we've made a few mistakes, but at least we don't need to add these nasty adjuvants anymore. And in some respects, it's better that they use this mRNA technology and it's just a case of fine tuning it. Or again, are we really dealing with something we don't understand? We don't understand what's going on with this, especially with the whole transfection phenomenon. It, that's endemic to mRNA vaccines, not just a COVID shot. And so, you know, I get very, very concerned about insertional effects that are associated with messenger RNA that can be reverse transcribed. It's been shown to be to happen in vitro uh, with the actual mRNA vaccine. And, um, you know, it, it, the, the whole idea of it, it's very, very simple because you just take the genetic code of the antigen that you're looking for and you plug that into that mRNA cassette and then you put a lipid nanoparticle around it and then voila, you have a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Okay, so from a manufacturing standpoint and a development standpoint, it's very simple. But again, unintended consequences of mRNA vaccines, they're understudy. We do not know what we're dealing with. We do not know the frequency of gene transfer. 
uh, into these into these individuals. And we're seeing a real uptick in many, many types of disorders since the introduction of the COVID shot. Brian, there's a lot of people who will be thinking these companies are multi-billion organizations. They've got all the money in the world, all the funding, all the smart people working there. They've done these studies. They know exactly what happens and how it works. They don't care. It's intentional. Or is it literally they just don't even bother looking? This is to them a great idea. Some of them genuinely believe in it. Some of them genuinely don't care. And all they see is the ching ching. Are they, are they really genuinely not studying and looking into this? I find that difficult to believe. I think if I was bringing a product to the market, I would test the hell of it, hell out of it. I'd make sure it's proper, it works. I don't want to get anyone coming back to me and calling me up and saying, hey, what have you done? You know, I, I'd want to really make sure this thing is really good. Are they genuinely not doing any of these studies? They're doing the studies that the FDA requires them to do, okay? And and through the emergency use authorization, um, they were able to get away with very, very little testing, very, very few animal trials before they went into human clinical trials. And the human clinical trials were much attenuated. Testing costs money, okay? And so doing less testing um, actually enhances the bottom line. Okay, but wouldn't you do the amount of testing if you were a business enterprise? Wouldn't you do the amount of testing that the Food and Drug Administration would then say, oh, this is a safe product? Yeah, that's what they do. Okay, so basically part of the problem is the regulatory bodies who are clearly not doing their job, which is protecting the public. They're letting these people off the hook. And maybe part of it is the whole revolving doors. One day you're working for the regulatory body and then suddenly the next day you're chairman of or president or on the board of the big pharma company. You know, so correct. it's all wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, so they're all working for each other. But, you know, are there no studies to show where these lipid nanoparticles go and how toxic they are and whether they can be reversed? No, that's not the case. Um, there are studies that show there were studies leaked uh, through a Japanese organization regarding the Pfizer vaccine. And it showed that uh, the lipid nanoparticle would accumulate in organs. It did not stay in a bolus injection in the upper arm. Um, it actually would accumulate selectively in ovaries. Uh, and probably to a lesser extent also in testes. And that's why, you know, I'm very concerned about fertility issues as well as carryover of the uh, genetic material into the offspring. You know, what what's happening? And, and you know, we, there has been an uptick. I do not feature it in the book because I didn't couldn't find any vax on vax studies for it. But there have been an uptick of menstrual issues associated with the COVID-19 shot directly. Okay. And what about the spike protein? Have there been studies to show how long the spike protein is made for, by what tissues in the body, and for how long, and what's the varying dose of spike protein that's being made? Like what's the lower limit and upper limit? What's the average? And how can start, they Those studies are starting to come out. 
They're starting to come out, but they were not done prior to vaccine approval. Um, they did not look at a circulatory uh, study. I don't, I don't even believe they looked at a clearance study of the spike protein uh, in the body prior to FDA approval. Um, they are, they are looking at the spike protein. It's very difficult to measure the spike protein, but now there are techniques, um, called tandem mass spectrometry that there, uh, have been developed, excuse me, specifically for that. And they're, they're measuring spike protein in the bloodstream to see how long it persists in the bloodstream. And then that would be indicative of how long it's persisting in the organs as well. Um, and, and, and they do they know- see that the spike. Sorry, carry on. Uh, they do see that the spike protein persists for at least six months. And have they... In some individuals. Right. And have they found any, like, for example, say they find uh, that somebody just keeps making spike protein. Is there an off switch? No. Uh, there are treatments. There are things that will dissolve and um, and break down the spike protein. And I recommend people that uh, feel like, you know, if if they are having vaccine adverse events to the COVID-19 shot, especially in the U.S., to go to flccc.net, which is the uh, frontline um, COVID-19 critical care workers. Uh, and they're working with protocols in there. There are lots of doctors affiliated with them that are, you know, across the country. Some are doing telemedicine as well. And they're coming up with protocols to detoxify the spike protein, which is toxic. It's toxic to cells. It causes blood clotting. It integrates, you know, it, it basically initiates the clotting process by interactions with the platelets that do have ACE2 receptors on them, just like most other cells in the body. Yeah, I always find that a strange one, Brian. Why would you want the body to make the most toxic part of this SARS-CoV-2? Um, couldn't they have just found another part of it so that the body made that? I, I don't get it. I really don't understand that. You don't no, understand No, it doesn't make sense to me either. There are other targets. on If you're looking at SARS-CoV-2, you know, there's a nucleocapsid protein. There are other accessory proteins that are associated. There isn't just one protein on on COVID-19, and the spike protein is the most toxic portion. So You're absolutely you, right. So why would you make that bit? Well, there would be some instances that you would say it's the spike, it sticks out, it's the most prominent portion. And so if you have robust immunity against the spike protein, then you'll have more robust immunity against the entire pathogen. Uh, but again, I mean, safety, you're, you're laying all the safety concerns of it aside. Is this, is this just the nature of big pharma and the vaccine industry? Are they just... Are they just cowboys? Are they just reckless? Are they just like, we don't care. We're not going to get sued. We've got the immunity and, you know, indemnified. We're going to make tons of money. Let's just go for it. Is that, is that literally how cavalier they are? I wish I could say no. God, I wish I could say no, Ahmed. Um, I just, you know, I've seen too much. I've seen too much. And, you know, there's so much um, that in these corporations that's chasing the bottom line. 
And there is no liability protection against against vaccinations. We have the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which is a no-fault program. It makes it very, very difficult, nigh into impossible, to sue a vaccine manufacturer for uh, for damages due to a vaccine injury. Now we have the countermeasures um, uh, injury compensation program as well, which I think has compensated two people since the pandemic has started for injuries due to the COVID-19 shot. Um, and so it, there's a liability shield there. There isn't a check and balance in order to make sure that these products are safe. And now we have the FDA that has the fast track program where the pharmaceutical companies can pay directly the FDA in order to fast track approve their products. Okay. Over 45% of all revenues of the FDA in the United States come from the pharmaceutical industry. Tell me that's not agency capture. It's pretty bad. Dude, in the UK, the MHRA is something like 70 or 80%. It's higher. I've seen that figure just recently. I think Ed Dowd was showing me that. But yes, much, much higher. Very depressing. So, Brian, if you're if you're like the president tomorrow and you could you've got all the power, you've got all the executive power, you can do whatever you like. What would you do? What would you recommend happens? How do we get out of this mess? Well, first of all, first of all, I would I would. um take off all pharmaceutical commercials from commercial television and radio in the United States. You know, I think that's a huge, huge issue. Mm. And, you know, we have a pill or a vaccine for every ailment now. And, you know, advertising is so, so huge. Um, and, and I would, um, I, I think I would have to abolish the CDC for sure. I mean, it's 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 very, very difficult to look at that agency and say, yeah, we can reform it. Um, it has been so corrupt for such a long time um, that it needs. There needs to be it's some type of there is no independence. When you look at the Department of Health and Human Services and you look at agency capture, there is no independence. So something has to be created that would be the independent arbiter of vaccine safety. And there is nothing like that. Wow. Well, this has been very sobering. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? Well, I want to thank you for being so patient with me with, uh, you know, with my situation of recording this at home. Um, and I, I do, um, I, I do hope that people buy the book. I hope that people will give the book to parents, uh, new parents, expecting parents. You know, I it, this is the type of information I wish that I would have had when I was making decisions, vaccine decisions for my own family. And so, you know, I think it's a really, really good handbook. Uh, it doesn't read like a novel. It reads like a handbook. But you can flip through the pages if you're looking for a specific vaccine or a specific type of vaccine, and you can flip through the pages and you can see what studies are out there where they compared vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and adults. So, can I ask you another question? If you could go back yes, in sir. time, if you were about to have, you know, children now, is there any vaccine that you think is safe and you would give to them? In my instance, no, no, I, I do not. 
Um, you know, knowing what I know now about my own family and my own son's genotype, then it was very predictable, you know, what happened. I'm sorry. I ask this to everyone. If, if you imagine yourself, you've reached the grand age of 135 and you're lying comfortably on your deathbed. You've only got a little bit left to go and your family's all around you, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. What piece of advice, health or otherwise, would you impart on them? I would say every day is surrender. You just give up and you you wake up in the morning and you surrender yourself to what God wants you to do. And that's what you do for the day. It's simple. It's very, very simple. You know, investing. Yeah. Investing in my career. That's fine. Um, investing in my family. That's a whole nother matter. And, you know, honestly, that still small voice um, encourages me to invest in my family every single day. Um, but, you know, I, I, I urge people to listen to that still small voice and surrender to it. Okay. Lovely. Brian, I'm going to put the links to your book and your social media and your website and whatever else on the, on the, the description of the podcast. So if anybody wants to find Dr. Brian Hooker and the book, and any Amazon link, it'll all be there. Um, I'd like to thank you, Brian, for talking to me. I hope to have you back one day. I hope this book is a success. And I thank you for all the work you've been doing. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You're very welcome. It was a, it was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much, Ahmed. Thank you. Brian, you're a really good egg. <laughs>